You made these arguments incredibly well, um, and you got the facts to back them up. Let me just turn to the Republicans now. What, what, how do you, you mentioned the midterms earlier. Let's look ahead. How do you assess the kind of political strength and prospects of the, of the GOP right now? Well, keep in mind, you're talking to somebody who very likely is going to run for president. Uh, if I decide to, I'm going to announce sometime early April or, or mid-April. So uh, I have a little bit of bias. But so I, think I thought I was going to have to tease that out of you with some <laughs> trick question. No, 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 <laughs> there you are. Right now, did it? Uh, the volcano erupted. Uh, Hello, Rebels. Welcome to The Steve Hilton Show. What a show we got for you today. Um, Larry Elder is here. You can you have to hang on for that. It's an amazing conversation, but it's really, really special. He's got something special to say. So that's going to be very exciting. Before that, though, Bill Esaley. Do you remember him? If you've been with the show when we were still the Daily California, you remember Bill Esaley was then a candidate for, for the state legislature here in California. He's now a member of the Assembly in California. He's got some really fantastic, practical policy ideas he's put into bills to address two of the biggest concerns we have. And actually, it's relevant to anyone listening anywhere in the country. A really, really smart uh, way to reform our elections to make sure that people have confidence in our elections after all the mucking about that we've seen um, uh, from the Democrats over the last few years. And then also a really smart policy on guns. We, we hear all the time about the Democrats endlessly going on about gun crime. Um, gun crime, we need more gun laws and so on. Well, actually, the point is, as Bill Esaley makes in this, in this incredibly clear and simple piece of legislation you're going to hear about, the point is to make sure that we stop criminals using guns for crime, for violent crime and other forms of crime. And he addresses that very, very directly. It's a really important uh, conversation, and I just wish that it would be the way we talk about this issue nationally. So that's coming up. Then we have Larry Elder, and then we're going to round it out today with our friend Jennifer Horn, um, with actually some really interesting news about the uh, what's going on with our forests here in California. And... A very surprising statement in a story that I found in the L.A. Times about the whole uh, situation with forests and wildfires. I think you'll find that a great conversation. Um, it's a really, really uh, full episode of fantastic content for you. And here we go. Here's Bill Isaley. Bill, fantastic to see you. Uh, you're elected now. When we last spoke, you were running for office. Now you're there in the assembly. Great news. How does it feel? It's great to be here. You know, you campaign, you're on the trail, you talk about everything you want to do, and now you're actually up here and it's time to work. So I'm excited to get to work. Yeah, I mean, and you really are. Um, and there's a couple of things that are really important and right um, over the target of a couple of the big issues that a lot of people are talking about, where you've introduced some really smart and thoughtful legislation. One is on the issue of our elections and how to restore some confidence to the whole process, yes. um, particularly here in California. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we talk about it all the time. It's just crazy what they've been doing um, in the name of uh, democracy. And of course, what they're doing is undermining confidence in democracy. And the other is on the issue of guns and crime. And, uh, you know, we've we've had that debate sadly recently here in California because of the the shootings that took place the other week. Um, but again, you've got a really thoughtful um, approach to that. I'd love to talk about both of them because you've introduced bills on both those topics. Let's start with the election bill. Um, tell us what that is all about. Yeah, this is really, really important to me because we live in, we live in a republic 
And if we don't have sound elections that the people have confidence in, then, then that's going to undermine our entire government. Everything is built on that foundation of having uh, sound and secure elections and having a system that people have confidence in. California in 2016 changed the way we do elections. Mm -hmm. They basically moved the system to being primarily vote by mail, and they legalized ballot harvesting. 2016. 2016 is when they, they first changed the law to allow counties to go fully uh, vote by mail. Oh, that's interesting, because a lot of people think of it as a pandemic thing. Cor uh, California had it in the works already, and that was the goal, to do mm -hmm. it completely vote by mail. COVID accelerated their plan. Right. So when COVID hit, they all basically went to vote by mail. So 2016, the legislation then made it possible, allowed universal vote by mail, and then 2020, they actually implemented it. Well, some counties were doing vote by mail in 2020. Basically, all the counties in California went to vote by mail. But the language was changed in 2016 to allow it. Some mm -hmm. were doing it before. Everyone's basically doing it after. And then they legalized ballot harvesting. So it's a two-part thing, right? First, you've got to get all the ballots in the mail. And then you've got to legalize the ballot harvesting, which they did, to allow you to collect the ballots. Was that also 2016? Yes. That was so for those who haven't, haven't so it was it all in one piece of legislation? Yes. Great. So this is really helpful um, because we talk about all these things in a general way. And now you're giving us some specifics, which is always great. Let's just talk for a second. Could you explain, because we, we mention it all the time, just and under the law, what ballot harvesting is, what is allowed under that 2016 change in regards to ballot harvesting? Sure. Um, before the law was you had to specifically request an absentee ballot if you mm -hmm. wanted to vote by mail. You would get the ballot. And under the law, the only person who could turn that ballot in was you yourself or a relative in the same household. So mm -hmm. it had to be somebody directly connected to you. It was illegal for anyone else to handle that ballot. Uh, when ballot harvesting became legalized, now any person, no questions asked, is allowed to collect anybody's ballot, no chain of custody, no, no records, and can turn that in on your behalf at the registrar of voters. So now you have basically this industry and out in California, it's primarily uh, union workers mm -hmm. uh, who are hired by the hour to go door to door from people that they know are uh, probably not as likely to vote, low propensity voters. And they will basically go as many times as they need till they can convince that person to hand over their ballot for them to turn it in. So we have this whole industry now of ballot harvesting, which, which is a new, new thing that we didn't have just a few years ago. It is completely amazing. I remember when I first heard about it, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a joke. I thought you got you can't be serious. This this can't be the law. Um, can I ask some follow up questions? So first of all, in the law, the, the twenty sixteen law that legalized this in California, are there any limits at all on the number of ballots that any person can collect and hand in? No limit on the number of ballots. No no real uh, requirement to record who's collecting the ballots. And the registrar of voters will accept a limited amount of ballots from anybody. And you've seen on some, some videos uh, in California and other states, they have these drop boxes now. So really anybody can put them in the drop box. So there's no limits. The only limit there is is you're, you're, it's illegal to pay somebody per ballot. So you cannot go and pay someone $10 a ballot, but you can pay them by the hour to go collect the ballot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and presumably you can incentivize them other ways, you know, non-financial non incentives, whatever it may be. Um, can I ask what the, how that ballot harvest, like when you talk about ballot harvesting just now and people imagine, you know, the concept going door to door and so on. 
um, that how does that interact with the mail-in aspect? Because you're, you're, the way you talked about ballot harvesting, it was going door to door and then handing it in with the registrar. Does that how does it fit with mail-in? Yeah. So in order to have a successful ballot harvesting program, you need obviously a lot of ballots to be mailed out for you to collect. So California did a few things. First, it, it basically anybody who interacts with the DMV was getting automatically registered to vote. Mm-hmm. So they were all being put into the system. You're now a registered voter. And then two, with the law changes, now every registered voter gets a ballot mailed to their home, whether you want it or not. And that was 2020, wasn't it? 2016 is the law change that allowed it. And now through the through the years, every county has vote by mail in, in California. So every voter gets a ballot in the mail, regardless of whether they want it or not. And wasn't the, I remember Gavin Newsom announcing that. Is this a statewide that the, the everybody will be sent a ballot with great pride and flourish? He said everyone's going to get a ballot. Is that a statewide um, decision to mail everyone a ballot, or is it county by county? And he persuaded the counties. How did that all work? It was originally set up to, for the counties to decide, and then I believe it was in 2020 where the state basically said we're going to go full uh, vote by mail for the entire state. And that's when it started. And, and here, here's the problem, because everyone always asks me, well, what's the problem? You have no mm-hmm. evidence that there's an issue with this. The problem is our voter rolls in California are totally outdated. They're not kept up to date. You have people who've moved that are still receiving ballots. You have people who've died who are still receiving ballots. Uh, we get reports from people receiving more than one ballot, duplicate ballots. So, you know, under this system, the voting rolls themselves aren't accurate and kept up to date. So it, it really opens up this Pandora's box of all these ballots, 20 million ballots, in fact, being mailed out in election. And we have no idea who's receiving the ballot, who's completing the ballot and who's returning the ballot. There, there's zero chain of custody. And in terms because there's no postage right for mail in ballots. That's correct, isn't it? So you just so the, the, the ballot harvesting process works exactly the same way. But instead of handing it in to a physical polling location, you just mail it or you put it in a drop it. box. You mail it or you could take it to a they have these drop boxes yeah. specifically for ballots or you could go hand it in at the registrar. Uh, so, yeah, it could get there three different ways. So I think that the point about this is even if and, and everyone, as you say, they always say, well, what's your evidence? You know, where's the fraud and so on? Um, and and the, the point, I think, is that the more that these rules changed in this kind of loosey-goosey kind of way, the more that it creates the opportunity for those with bad intent to question our elections and undermine confidence. And so it's in everyone's interest that we, that we have a really buttoned-down, tightly-run system where everyone can have confidence. And, and, it's no, and, and what it's devolved into is this ridiculous partisan kind of bickering over you know election deniers versus you know you you know you want to um stop you know vote suppression and, and all this kind of stuff and it's just so terrible that something that is so central and fundamental to the health of our um of of, of everything that that our kind of policy decisions rest on is just questioned and yeah. their decisions have made it this 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 uncertain thing i want to address that and then i want to talk about what i think the solution is which is yeah bill. but uh They've created, and I'm a former prosecutor, I'm a local deputy district attorney in Riverside County, and then I was a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I understand what fraud is and how you prove fraud. In order to prove fraud, you need evidence. And what they've set up is a system with no evidence. 
like I said, there's no chain of custody. So there's no record keeping of who's receiving the ballot. There's mm -hmm. no record keeping of who's actually filling the ballot out. And there's no record keeping of who's returning the ballot or whether the ballot's been, you know, altered or, or manipulated in any way. And also the other problem that I think is really corrosive is you have no idea what the conversation is with the voter at their door. Yeah. Yeah. So are they being uh, pressured? Uh, are they being threatened? Are they being bribed? Uh, are they being persuaded to hand over a blank ballot for them to fill out? That whole interaction is totally unmonitored and unregulated. And I think that's where the opportunity is for, for bad actors, whether you want to call it fraud or just bad bad practices, whatever it is, it's not healthy. And so that's why in my bill, I want to get people back to voting in person. I think it's healthy for our yeah. republic, our, our, our democratic republic, if you will. Um, we should have the ability as Americans to come together and make a decision on the same day and then have the results that night or the next day at the latest. But this era of months-long voting and another month to receive ballots breeds skepticism it breeds conspiracies. It breeds all kinds of bad things. It is not healthy for our system. So whether or not you believe there's any fraud, my, my bill is separate from that. This is about good governance and getting people's confidence built up back into the system. Exactly. You put that beautifully. It's, it's what I've been saying, you know, for, well, certainly months, years on the, on this whole subject um once we got it once this really became an issue as the, as you saw these pandemic era changes although you're quite right to point out i, I didn't realize that it was actually pre-pandemic in the case of the california democrats so let's talk about your bill yes. um what does it do so ab 13 assembly bill 13 introduced on my first day in office i, I did it as soon as i sw was sworn in on december 5th and what it does is it restores california back to the laws before 2016. Mm -hmm. so back to the system you don't get a ballot by mail unless you request one. You can request to be an absentee voter, so it's opt-in. And that, therefore, the default is for everyone to vote in person on Election Day. It would ban ballot harvesting. Mm -hmm. And then to address the issue of ballot access or people having the opportunity to vote in person, my bill would make Election Day a holiday in California. So everyone has the day off. They can get to the ballot and vote. Uh, to the polls, and then they can go celebrate, and we can enjoy a, a good American holiday and celebrate. See, I, that's exactly. It. I love it. I, I've been arguing for this for you know as long as long as this has been an issue. I said, vote on one day, count on one day, results on one day, and let's make civic participation um, a celebration for the community and make it a holiday. I couldn't agree more. One hundred percent behind what you've just said. Just some, some small details, if I may. So, are you eliminating? in this bill early voting entirely or is there or are you just restricting it from the what is it now is it six weeks now or so i can't remember so, exactly right now i mean they mail ballots out about a month before the election right so you would still be able to receive that uh, early mail ballot if you if you want it so there's mm -hmm. some people prefer to vote by mail we have i have elderly people in my district and it's you know it's just difficult for them to get out or uh if you're disabled or if you're serving overseas there are reasons, there are legitimate reasons people need, have yes. that they need to vote by mail. And so my bill still allows that, or if you just prefer to vote by mail. But it's an opt-in. It's not going to automatically send out millions of ballots. Okay. And the default is we got to go back to local voting precincts. Uh, and this is what I grew up with. 
people would I would see adults come voting at my elementary school. Yeah. Or someone would host the the polls at their home in the neighborhood. So getting back to those small precincts um, and having people the ability to vote in person in their own neighborhood with your neighbors, it should be a civic celebration. And and no early voting at all, not even the weekend before in person. You know, I it's not something that's specifically addressed in that. I guess technically this bill would not allow it, but. Look, if that's a sticking point to open them up early, uh, I'm not opposed to it. Um, there's room for, for amendments, uh, but that's not I, ideally. I think it's better if everyone votes in person on the same day. on election day. And you make a on great thing of it. Yeah. yeah. What about the argument um, that you get? I'm sure you've already get it from the other side, which is, well, I hear what you're saying, that everyone who wants to, let's say they have a job that's odd hours or they're out of the country, as you say, on vacation, whatever, for serving overseas and or with a disability, they literally can't get to the polls. They need the thing. But it's all very well for you, Bill Asaley, to say, well, you can you can request a mail-in ballot. But for some people, there's an inertia there. You know, that's quite a that's a quite a high bar. Um, and therefore proactively sending them the ballot is the way to increase participation. Well, look, I, I don't think anyone ever said civic duty comes with no level of inertia or, or um, any, any, any will to make something happen. I don't think it's a high barrier. I mean, we can make it very easy to request a ballot. And, you know, I think the dirty secret about ballot harvesting is, is, is expose something that the Democrats know, which is when voter turnout is low, Democrats usually don't uh, fare well. Republicans do better because the people showing up to vote are engaged. They know the issues. They know the subject matter. And they're taking the time out of their day to go and vote. There's a lot of people that don't vote because they don't want to vote. It's sort of a protest of the system. Mm -hmm. Or they don't understand the issues and they don't feel uh, informed enough to vote. And I think that's a decision, too. Everyone has the right to vote. But I don't think we need to have a system where we're forcing everyone to vote whether they want to or not. And that's what I fear we're turning into a system where we are demanding that everyone hand in a vote, whether they want to vote or whether they're informed enough to vote or even if they know what they're doing. So I, I do think there should be some level of uh, will to want to participate in the system. We should yeah. bring the barriers down as much as possible. But I, I do think it's healthy for people to be engaged, involved, know the issues. And then I don't really think it's asking a lot to show up. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. Um, I remember years ago writing, I think in my in my book, I don't know, I can't remember when it was, many years ago, that maybe even 20 odd years ago, that I think it was that one, that, you know, there are people who talk about, at the time, there were there were people talking about, well, we shouldn't, you know, open up, do it technologically. People vote by text, whatever, make it easy. I said, well, actually, it's not about making it just more easy. It's about making it more attractive, you know, making people want to vote and make them feel like their vote makes a difference. And that's on the politicians. It's not just sort of some mechanistic thing. Can I talk about the prospects with you about for, for this bill? Um, so you've introduced it. What happens next? Uh, it's going to go to the Elections Committee, which I sit on. And it will, uh, we will hopefully have a robust hearing in which I can bring in witnesses and, and other testimony to hear the bill. Now, I mean, I think the public knows that we're in a supermajority Democrat legislature, so the odds of it passing are probably not great. But I think it's important that we have the conversation mm -hmm. and that we bring attention to it. And we do push Democrats on why not do this bill and, and, and pressure them to do it. 
Ideally, what I want the public to know uh, as a Republican is that we do have solutions um, and we are working on this. But if the public does, loses trust in elections, this is an issue I heard during the last election was a lot of Republicans just didn't want to vote. They said, what's the point? Um, and if you don't vote, then you've already given up. Yeah. So part of this is to is, is communications and is to show if we get a few more Republicans elected, we may have the opportunity to change these laws for good and get us right back on track. So I want to lead by example and, and with policy. And I'm going to push hard. We'll see how far the bill goes. But I don't want to get people's hopes up in California that the Democrats are going to uh, sign on and pass this. And what? how does it I mean, is this the first bill to do all this in the country? What are other states doing? On this issue that you're aware well, of. I know Georgia, I know after 2020, a lot of states did their own things. Florida and Georgia, I think, beefed up their uh, their their ballot. Their uh, there's process to make the ballots more secure. And what's uh, what's impressive about that is they got a lot of criticism for trying to suppress voters. But the, the numbers show that more people voted than ever did before mm-hmm. because there was more confidence in the system. So that totally takes away the narrative that this is some Republican suppression. Effort to- us voters it's just not true yeah exactly i think it's great thank you for doing it it makes such sense um and 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 very much in line with what i've always argued um can we quickly turn to the um the other bill which is very interesting um that you've introduced which is on this issue of guns and crime tell us about that yeah so uh there's a lot of talk about gun violence and gun laws and you know really what we're what we're missing in california is enforcement and deterrence we're not missing more gun laws. We have more than 100 gun laws on the books. My bill restores the firearms enhancement. And what the bill says, it's very simple, is that if you commit a violent crime and you have a gun with you at the time, it's 10 years mandatory prison on top of your sentence. If you use the gun in the commission of a violent crime, it's 20 years minimum in prison. And if you hurt somebody with the gun, it's 25 to life. So these are really serious consequences for people who commit crimes with firearms. And that's the element of society we need to be targeting. A very small number of people commit most of the violent crime. And so they need to be put on notice that if you use a gun in a crime, you're going to be locked up for a long time. So don't do it. And to me, that's what we're missing. That actually used to be the law in the books in California. And they took it off a few years ago because it was sending too many people to prison. So that, that's where we are in California. The Democrats took it off because it was sending too many criminals who use guns to prison. Correct. And these these are the people who go on and on about gun crime. I I call it manufactured outrage. I mean, we have our governor giving press conferences. He's trying to regulate concealed carry weapons holders who we we looked in the last 10 years. There was one person with a CCW permit who committed a committed a crime, a homicide. They, They aren't the population at issue. The population is the violent segment of society, and they don't want to incarcerate them because for whatever reason, they believe the system is racist. And so they've been I mean, I think that, you you know, I've made this argument that there's the the criminal justice reform movement that, you know, there is some truth to the the assertion that too many people were incarcerated for low level crime that was not violent. And perhaps you could have looked at alternatives. And that particularly affected young black men. And that had a really bad uh, impact on communities and so on, family formation and and ongoing social and economic problems. So there's a real argument there. But not when it comes to violent crime. 
um, and carrying a gun uh, is not the same as some kind of street drug dealing or a traffic offence. That's the third offence, and you get hit by three strikes or whatever it may be. I'm making stuff up. I think there's a famous story about the pizza or something, wasn't there? That that, that prompted three strikes in Europe. So you know the reform of that. So I just want to be again really precise about this. What? When did they? remove the it's called the gun enhancement is it yeah it's the firearm enhancement enhancement. so when did that get removed it was a few years ago i don't know the exact uh, year it was taken off the books by the legislature by the legislature in an effort to empty the prisons which california has been systematically doing for almost a decade now Uh, we had a prison overcrowding about 10 years ago yeah that was the and there's a supreme court ruling wasn't there well, there's a Supreme Court ruling that said you can't pack all these people into, into a prison. You're over capacity. It's a very simple solution. We hadn't built a prison in 30 years in California. You build more prisons. But the Democrats said the opposite. They said, well, let's just let everybody out of prison. So we are, we are uh, I'm on the budget committee, and there's proposals to close even more prisons in the next year, what, even while crime is going up. So there's a disconnect between uh, the Democrats' policies and what they claim they're trying to accomplish. And I'd love people to call them out, the governor, and say, you want more gun laws, but what's the punishment? What's the, what are you going to do with people when they violate the gun laws? They don't want to prosecute people or hold people accountable or put them in custody. So my law targets the violent segment of society who are using guns. And so I say, if you want to be serious about gun crime, then you have to have serious consequences. And that's what my bill does. And just to, to repeat, if you commit a crime and you're, there's a violent gun... Crime. It's a violent crime. Uh, okay, violent crime. So what, and that is defined clearly in the law, is it? It's defined. It's, you know, it's like a robbery or it's not just simply you're speeding or something. It's, right, it's so a, you're speeding and you've, got, and, you, and you've got a gun in the car and you, so that wouldn't qualify. No. Got it. This seems so utterly sensible. It's very sensible. <laughs> it's very It seems so clearly the right answer because if you know that you're going to be in serious consequences, you know, have serious consequences, automatic jail time for committing a violent crime with a gun on your person. That's a real deterrent. And you're saying 10 years if you just for committing the crime, even if you don't use the gun, 20 years if you use the gun, 25 if you injure someone or kill someone. Yes. I mean, that just seems so sensible. Even I can remember it. And I, you know, and and that you only told me a few minutes ago. I mean, and criminals, by the way, as we know, and you know better than I do with your background, are highly sensitive to these incentives. They really understand the law. They they are rational. They are rational. Exactly. They, They act rationally. Can I ask her how your bill would interact with the local law enforcement regimes? For example, if you have a DA like Gascon in New in L.A., what he would he be able to override this somehow? Well, the law is written as a mandatory enhancement. Now the DA has to file the enhancement, and I know there's been some legal cases going on. I'm not sure where the status of them are, where the DA is refusing to file enhancements, and the court might have the authority or jurisdiction to add them over the DA's um, over the DA's uh, lack of charging them. So it's a complicated issue in California. Um, but my language would make it very clear that it's it's a mandatory enhancement. The judges have to include it, even if the DA doesn't ask for it. That's up. That's a legal question that's still being figured out by the courts. Which but court? The, what do you mean, the court? It's going through the courts in California, and whether the judges can add it up themselves when the DA doesn't add the enhancement.
Because there have been stories like like he's been doing all this. He's been um, um, refusing to add gang enhancements and all this stuff, right? And, and a lot of pe- a lot of victims associations. We've had them on the show. Really up, upset about that. They are, and they're challenging it in the courts, saying that the, the courts have to include the enhancement, whether he charges it or not. So that that is up for that is up for legal question. But really, the solution there. He's a minority of DAs. I mean, most of the DAs yeah. are standing very strong. The solution when you have a DA not enforcing public safety is to get rid of that DA. So, I mean, if the yeah. people in Los Angeles are happy with crime and they, they want to continue that in that road, then I encourage them to reelect George Gascon. But if they're sick of the crime, I, then reelect somebody else. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, that, I think the answer is, you know, and put you in charge of a lot of things because you seem to be very sensible <laughs> and have thought it all through um, and, and, and put forward really s- simple and clear proposals that would make a difference. Just last question, Bill, again, on this gun bill. Any chance of that actually moving forward? I hope so. I think there's a, we're, we're noticing a bit of a momentum shift up here in Sacramento where a lot of Democrats are becoming uncomfortable with the crime and they're hearing it from mm-hmm. their constituents. And I'll tell you, um, right after parental rights education, I would say public safety is one of the biggest issues I hear about from my constituents. And I live in Riverside County where we're law and order. I mean, the stuff that goes on in L.A. doesn't come to Riverside. I mm-hmm. represent Norco. I mean, we had an 80-year-old shoot uh, a, a robber that came to a liquor store in Norco. So even in Riverside, public safety is a big issue. I can only imagine what the legislators in, in some of these high-crime cities are hearing from their voters. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, it's Norco where you have the horses everywhere. Yes, Horsetown, USA. They're very proud of it. Yeah, I've got to go there sometime. Sounds amazing. And um, we'll come and see you, Bill, and, and you can you can uh, you can host us there. Fantastic. I'm so happy that you're in the legislature. I think everyone listening and watching will be. Um, you know, good luck moving these these things forward against. Um, you know. Well, we know what the the math is in the legislature, yeah. but we we were all fighting to change it. So, um, and I and I, you you're, you're clearly an absolutely fantastic addition. Um, so, congratulations! Thank you for being here to tell us about these two bills. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me on. Happy to come back anytime. And I say for people listening, you, you're not some uh, you know you're not some uh, observer on the outside. Nothing to do. You can influence. So I say people get involved. Mm-hmm. Spread the word and call your legislator, especially if they're a Democrat. Call them. Yes, great point. That's exactly what we're here to do on the Steve Hilton Show. Let's get people engaged. Thank you. Thank you. See you soon. Thank you, Steve. Right. Here he is, Larry Elder, uh, with some news for us. Not quite news. It's kind of hinting at some news. I think you know what I mean. Here's Larry. All right, Larry. So we are taping this the morning after the State of the Union, Biden's second State of the Union. So I've got to ask you, what did you make of it? Well, it was one lie after another, after another, after another. Uh, I thought the most uh, interesting part of that evening, though, was uh, Sarah Huckabee's rebuttal. Normally, rebuttals yeah. are dry and, and boring, and hers was exciting and, and moving. She told a really uh, fantastic story about uh, her being on Air Force One, going in the dark of night to, to Iraq. But, uh, you know, getting back to Biden, it was one lie after another. What we do know, though, from that speech is that there's no question, Steve, the man is going to run yep. in 2024 if he can stand up on two feet. Uh, he's in. Uh, <laughs> James Clyburn says that I am uh, for Biden and I'm for Kamala Harris. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said something like that recently. Chuck Schumer said something like that recently. Uh, the, if the plan was for Biden to, to uh, uh, win the election, make sure Donald Trump didn't win, and then hand it off to Kamala Harris, nobody, nobody told Joe Biden. <laughs>
Exactly. No, you. That, that's so interesting. I, that's exactly my reaction. And I think this is the, the, the really interesting part here, I think, is that the Democrats and their media, well, same thing, really, Democrats and the media, as we often say, uh, it's a tautology, but they um, have really, they, they seem to think, oh, but he didn't, he, he got through it. Um, yes, he stumbled a bit and can't seem to read things out without missing the odd word, all the rest of it. But they, the, the vibe seems to be, you know, that was pretty strong. His performance was good. He's definitely going to be running. The slogan he kept using was, what was it, finish the job and, and all this kind of stuff. And that he seemed to have persuaded the party that, yeah, he's, he's, he's fine and they shouldn't try and get rid of him. And that is a massive kind of confusing of short term and long term because in the short term yeah fine okay he, he didn't kind of completely mess it up but in the long term if that means that he really is the candidate I don't think that's good news for them well uh remember the midterms turned out to be a whole lot better than they thought they thought they were going to get massively slaughtered in the house uh we barely took the house uh, we thought we had a chance of taking back the senate we didn't in fact they increased their lead in the senate uh, there was a huge jobs report. Uh, never mind that many of these jobs are just jobs that came back uh, because of COVID. Exactly. Uh, and jobs that uh, were lost because of the way he paid people not to work. Uh, it still beat uh, analyst expectations. Uh, so Biden is feeling pretty good about himself and the Democratic Party is feeling good about themselves. The second problem, in quotes, is that, OK, if not Biden, who? Uh, are you yeah. talking about uh, uh, Gavin Newsom? Now, he may be popular in, in California, but the man is a loon. I mean, reparations, set up a board to pay uh, workers uh, in fast food uh, businesses a minimum of $22. Uh, he's banned uh, criminal enhancements for gang members because, after all, most gang members are black and brown, and therefore uh, it would be racist to do so. He's banned the sale of new gasoline-powered cars uh, in about 12 or 13 years. I can go on and on and on about what a loon yep. this guy is, and I hope the Democrats would nominate somebody like that. He'd be easier to defeat than, than Joe Biden. So who else are gonna, they're going to get? And you can't get rid of Kamala Harris. I think you and I have talked about this before, Steve. Yeah. Uh, uh, while she may be less popular than Joe Biden uh, in, in America, she is enormously popular among black voters. And the first primary now is South Carolina, where 60 percent of the voters on the Democratic side in the primaries are black. Most of those are black female. One poll, L.A. Times, had Kamala Harris among blacks at 75 percent. It wasn't wow. broken down by gender, Steve, but I assure you, black women like her even more than black men do. And the majority of these black voters are female. So she's probably about 80 percent among black females. And the Democratic Party has taught black people that if something goes wrong, goes sideways, it's because of systemic racism. And if, and if Kamala Harris is drop-kicked in favor of some white dude, like Mayor Pete or, or Gavin Newsom, black women will be livid. They won't vote Republican. They just won't vote, thereby guaranteeing whoever it is that we nominate in 2024 wins. Yeah, that's a really, really smart analysis. I think that's right. It's easy to write Kamala Harris off because her performances are so kind of cringeworthily bad. But you're right. There's a, there's a sort of constituency there. The other thing I just want to talk to you about is like you hear a... a you know, not a lot of conversation about this, but I've heard people saying some speculation about, well, is he going to draw Is Biden? OK, he's in. He's running again. He wants to do it. That's for sure. Probably the State of the Union, you know, has bolstered his hopes of avoiding a challenge or, or the kind of quiet tap on the shoulder that says, Joe, honestly, we need you to get out of here. But mm -hmm. there has been some speculation that he will change because she's so bad that he'll change Kamala Harris. I can't imagine that, that he would 
you could possibly drop a, a black woman. You know, the, with the party so obsessed with identity. Right. I mean, how could they, there's no chance that they would do that, is there? The only way she could be dropped is if she swapped out in favor of another black female. Who do you have? You have two. Oprah Winfrey doesn't want the job. A Michelle Obama doesn't want the job, doesn't have the temperament for the job. So there's nobody whose shoes are big enough for her to be swapped out over. And I yeah. read a lot of uh, black media, and, and Steve, they are livid at what they consider to be the sexist and racism criticism of her so-called cackle. They think it's right. trivial, uh, and they believe she's been given thankless tasks, like getting to the root causes of illegal immigration. Uh, and that Biden has uh, has treated her unfairly. So there's a great deal of, of support for Kamala Harris among black voters, and they are the backbone of the Democratic Party, particularly black female voters. Interesting. I think that's exactly right. So I just want to sort of move into looking at the Republican side a little bit by, again, just just one last thought on the State of the Union. I mean, look, we've, we've as, you, as you say, full of lies um, and, and full of, you know, just especially the, towards the end of it, got very political, very partisan, despite all the crap about, oh, I'm going to be Mr. Unity is back. Um, okay. It was incredibly partisan as, as, as this speech went on. But I thought what was interesting to me at the beginning, the first, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes or so, very much focused on the economy. To me, you know, you can pick holes in it, but actually it was a strong message in terms of the kind of blue collar appeal. It was very practical. It was focused on, you know, things that people could relate to, even stuff that some people have mocked, like, you know, the kind of resort fees at a hotel. Well, that's, a, you know, that, that kind of stuff connects with people because it's very practical. And, it, and it, to me, it, it's, it poses a kind of challenge to the Republicans, which is we hear all the time that the Republicans can, are now or will, will can really seize the opportunity to be the pro-worker party. Right. That first part of Biden's speech, I thought, came across as very pro-worker. And I think Republicans need to kind of up their game a bit to make sure that they really kind of get this political opportunity to be the workers' party. Well, it was very pro-worker. It was also very pro-full of lies. I mean, come on. 12 million jobs I created? No, you didn't. Uh, these were jobs that were lost because of the pandemic. The economy was roaring back until you came in and saddled it with paying people not to work. Yeah. Uh, he talked also about prices going down. Well, yeah, they, they've gone down from how uh, they were twice gasoline prices what they were under Donald Trump because of his war on oil and gas. Uh, and so, but, but, but Steve, in general, the Democrats, as we know from the Twitter files, benefit from a media that is supportive, that is in bed with them, as you said, calling the Democrats and the media, uh, are, are, it's really a tautology because they're the same. Yeah. Uh, and so no matter what lie he says, whether or not he talks about Republicans wanting to sunset Social Security and Medicare, I don't know anybody who wants to sunset Social Security and Medicare on our side, he knows the media will either ignore it or back him up. And so that's the, that's the ballast that the Democrats always have, and we're always fighting that battle. Take the New York Times, arguably the most influential newspaper in America. They have not endorsed a Republican for president since 1956 when I was four years old. The Washington <laughs> Post never has. The press corps outnumbered uh, uh, liberal reporters, outnumber conservatives by 12 to 1. Look at the money that uh, academics give to the Democratic Party. I saw a study about the Ivy League professors who gave money to the to either party. 95% goes to the yes. Democratic Party. We know that the executives at Google, at Facebook, at Instagram, uh, at Twitter gave 95% of their contributions uh, to the Democrat Party. So this is what we're up against. And they know no matter what lie they say, whether it's election denying, even though Hillary referred to Donald Trump as stolen for the entirety of his presidency, calling him illegitimate. See, she wasn't called an election denier who was undermining the foundation of our republic. But when we say it, uh, we're somehow fascists and Nazis. But they have that advantage and we have to deal with it. No, it's exactly right. Funnily enough, it reminds me, I'm going to have a look at it today, but um, I, I don't know if you caught it, but I had a big... Um 
go at the uh, at Instagram and USA Today because together they they did this kind of fact check on me when I when I um, on one of these shows and we on the and we put out a clip saying that but you know the Biden administration wants to ban gas stoves which they do, and there's right. so much evidence, and the evidence, there's more and more evidence of that coming all the time. Anyway, they, 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 they censored this clip and said it's false information. We've been going back and forth with them. And the point is that, you know, at the beginning of the censorship, you know, when they were aiming at, the, at, at um, you know, they, they called it, they said that it was all about stopping foreign election interference. Then it morphed into domestic uh, things that people were saying about the election. Then it, the mission creep extended to COVID misinformation. So you couldn't say anything that contradicted the group think on COVID. And now it seems like on gas stoves, they, they're censoring it. This is Instagram and USA Today as their independent fact checker. And basically they are acting as the propaganda enforcers of the talking points that are put up by the White House. I mean, it's just completely transparent that that's what they're doing. Absolutely. They've been doing it for a very long time. Uh, I was on Fox and Friends one morning, and I was talking about the biggest problem facing America to me and facing the black community in particular is a large number of kids who enter the world without a father married to the mother. And I said during slavery, a black child was more likely to be born under a roof with his biological mother and biological father than today. Fact check headline. Elder says blacks better off under slavery. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. That's shameless. It's totally shameless, isn't it? Blacks better off during slavery. <laughs> Elder. I love it. Well, you are the... Well, you, could, like Jim Crow. I know, well you, you are the black face of white supremacy. I mean, we do know that, Larry. You know, the LA Times told us, so it's got to be true. Um, so there's a couple of things on the, the, the... Just from what you're saying. So the Medicare and Social Security thing, I thought was another great example of kind of short-term versus long-term interest. So, again, the media and all the rest, oh, wasn't Biden, you know, he stuck it to the Republicans and he, and he, and he kind of forced them into a climb down on Social Security and Medicare with this debate that happened on the floor of the chamber during the, during the State of the Union. I think that's just completely ridiculous. Basically, what he did was confirm that the claim he was about to make and Democrats want to make is a lie. That's what he did. He kind of confirms, oh, we all agree we're not going to cut it. He kind of threw away this, yeah. gr this argument that they've been, they've been dying to use against Republicans. And he did a quick reversal, did a quick 180 within a matter of seconds. And you're quite right. I remember one time Ronald Reagan suggested that Social Security be voluntary. Had his head handed to him, he'd never said it again. George W. Bush briefly wanted a plan where you could put a portion of your contribution into an account that you can control. Uh, the Republicans abandoned the plan. Nancy Pelosi said, you gave us a big political gift. Uh, and so ever since then, it, it's been verboten not to talk about uh, Social Security and Medicare, even though even uh, President Obama said that these programs are, quote, unsustainable. His word, not mine. Right. But Anytime you tr suggest any kind of reform to it, uh, that's translated in into you want to end Social Security, you want to end Medicare, you want to end Medicaid, or as George uh, or as uh, Joe Biden said last night, you want to sunset it. It's a lie, absolute lie. Yes, exactly. But I, I, I think that he really undermined their own ability to keep saying that lie with the way he reacted last night, and the, and the fact that that. Kevin McCarthy and all the Republicans stood up to kind of support, you know, yes, we must support, um, you know, our seniors, you know, that, do you know what I mean? It was like he actually gave them an opportunity to rebut his lie. It was interesting. Um, on the jobs thing, I want to mention something else which is so important everyone needs to understand. You, you quite rightly pointed out that the jobs rebound is really just recovering from the pandemic and the lockdowns, which should, should never have happened in the first place. Um, <clears throat> the other part of it is... If you look at the they keep going on about the, you know, the lowest unemployment for 50 years or whatever. It's also the lowest labor participation 
for right. nearly 50 years. The last yes. time that it was this low, where the, the proportion of, of, of the adult working population actually were adults of working age who were actually working was 1977, you know. And so it's it's exactly what you're talking about, this kind of culture, this mindset that has crept in because of all the handouts of people not even looking for work. Well, well that's right. And again, it goes back to my point earlier about uh, him being backed by CNN, MSNBC. I bet you most of their viewers don't even know what the labor force participation rate even is. Yeah. And that's a percentage of able-bodied people who are working or looking to work. Uh, and it hasn't been this low in almost 50 years because so many people have been paid not to work. Uh, and um, again, that's a calculus that you're only going to get if you're watching Fox. Uh, if you're watching the rest of them, you will have no idea about that. You just know, quote, 500,000 new jobs were created yes. last month. And that beat uh, analyst forecasts. And so the Biden plan is working. That's the line. Uh, and that's what a lot of people believe. Although when you look at their own daily lives, most people believe that they are worse off uh, now than they were before Biden took over. Because if you just go, go, go to the store, look at the prices of eggs or yes, anything exactly. else, the average family is paying about five to $600 a month more for the goods that he or she uh, was paying for two years ago. The other thing that's insidious about that whole jobs thing is that they're using it to try and justify um, open borders because they say, look, look at the low unemployment. There's a labor shortage, all these job vacancies, 11 million job vacancies. We still have low unemployment. We've got to import more workers. No, we've got to get the Americans who are being paid not to work into those jobs. That's right. And I believe that the end game, the reason the borders are porous uh, the reason he's done nothing about it is, once again, uh, A, the, most Amer Americans don't realize how bad it is. I saw a poll, Steve, that Americans were asked how many illegal aliens came into the country last year. They were off by a factor of 10. So they don't mm. even realize two and a half million illegal aliens came in last year. The average American thought it was a quarter of a million. But the second reason is this, and, and I think uh, Biden tipped it off at his speech last night. He said we need comprehensive immigration reform. He believes that sooner or later it'll get so bad that Republicans will cave and grant massive amnesty to the so-called dreamers and other people. And that's what he ultimately will, will do. And if you do that, then I'll reimpose the Donald Trump policies that gave us the most secure border we ever had. You do that, I'll do this. That's the deal that he thinks uh, Republicans eventually will cave and make. And what do you think about that? Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I have to say, I've always thought that the dreamers argument is a strong one. Well, it's a strong one. It polls well, but all it does, as long as the borders remain porous, uh, is invite the next generation of dreamers to come here. So until the borders are, are, are secure, I don't think we ought to be talking about any legalizing, legalizing, let alone giving anybody a pathway to, to citizenship. But you close the back door first, and then we ha we'll have a conversation. Right. They're unwilling to do that. It's the sequence. I think that's right. I think that's right. You've got to have you got because otherwise people won't have confidence. And as you say, you just perpetuate the problem. And right. that was the big and I think the re, it seems I mean, I wasn't here, but it seems to me one of the big reasons that Republicans in particular are so skeptical of these deals is because that was what was promised, wasn't it? It was in 1986 under Reagan with that. That's right. Just talk about that, because I wasn't here for that. I'm sure you're much more familiar well, well, with it. First of all, the amount of, of people that benefited from amnesty uh, was three times the, the number that people thought. Uh, I don't believe there are 10, 12, 11 million people illegally in the country. I think it's probably three times that. Mm -hmm. It was a study done by some professor from Yale, and they put the number at around 25 million or 30 million. But you're right. Uh, in 1986, Ed Meese was the AG then, and he said there were two things that were promised. The first promise was that people that knowingly hired illegal aliens would be punished severely. Uh, and secondly, that the borders would be secured. Neither of them happened. And uh, so it was bait and switch, uh, and Republicans have vowed never to be duped like that again. Yeah, it's 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 a, and, and I think it's a any reasonable person would say 
what we've got going on now is totally unsustainable. You can't have this level of totally uncontrolled immigration. The thing I've always said is that Americans are pro-immigration. I'm pro-immigration. I'm an immigrant, right? And my parents were immigrants from communism in Hungary to England, where I right. grew up. So I'm pro-immigration. But public support for immigration depends on government control of immigration. When people think it's just a totally open free-for-all, and then and, and it's just the people who, you know, get who, who kind of cut in the line, and that means that you can't actually say, well, these are the people who, who, who genuinely need asylum. Here are the real refugees that we need to be taking care of. Here are people who we want to um, uh, welcome into the country because, because we think that, that, you know, they've either waited a long time patiently going through the process or mm -hmm. because they can make a special contribution. All these kind of reasonable things just get thrown out of the window when it's a completely open border and it's not sustainable. Moreover, uh, the, there are winners and losers behind illegal immigration. Obviously, the winners are people that hire... Uh, illegal aliens with uh, lower wages and knowing that they can't complain, otherwise they could get deported. Uh, but the biggest yes. loser are people who, with, with high school or less education, living in the inner city, mostly black and brown workers. Uh, there was a study done by the uh, Civil Rights Commission. One of my friends, Peter Kirsten, now has been on the commission for a very long time. And he says the, uh, the, there are about a million fewer black people working now because of illegal aliens. Uh, and uh, illegal aliens put downward pressure on the wages of an average person uh, between $1,800 and $2,000 a year. So the biggest losers are the very people that the Democrats claim that they care about, inner-city black and brown workers. And that's the other baffling thing about how they get away with this. Again, what I'm just now telling you is probably something that people that watch CNN and MSNBC and read the Washington Post and New York Times have no clue about. You made these arguments incredibly well, um, and you got the facts to back them up. Let me just turn to the Republicans now. Well, what, how do you, you mentioned the mid midterms earlier. Let's look ahead. How do you assess the kind of political strength and prospects of the of the GOP right now? Well, keep in mind, you're talking to somebody who very likely is going to run for president. Uh, if I decide to, I'm going to announce sometime early April or, or mid-April. So uh, I have a little bit of bias. But so I, think I thought I was going to have to tease that out of you with some <laughs> trick question. No, no, that, <laughs> there you are. Right now, did it? Uh, the volcano erupted. Uh, I haven't made a, a made a, a decision yet, but the, the odds are I'm going to I'm going to do this. I, I still believe it's Trump's nomination to lose. I still think he's the, he's the man. Uh, he has he was got an extraordinary record as as president uh, against awful headwinds. Uh, the suppression of the Hunter Biden story alone uh, had that not happened, he would have been reelected probably pretty resoundingly. Uh, the amount of money that Zuckerberg spent. Uh, to uh, get out the Democrat uh, turnout hurt him a great deal. And, of course, the lie about Russia-Trump uh, collusion hurt him a great deal. Despite all of that, great economy, great borders, best economy ever for blacks, for browns, for Hispanics, uh, for women. Uh, and he supports school choice, something that will disproportionately benefit uh, black and brown people. Uh, he was a magnificent president. I think he deserves another shot if he wants it. And th so, so but what do you think is missing from the Republican line up the pitch, as it were, that, that, that might persuade you that you've got a role to play there? Well, uh, a couple of things. We, we know what the issues are. They are inflation. They are the borders. They are, we no longer are energy independent. We need to be tough on China. But there are two things I think I bring to the table that others don't. The first is the centrality of what I said earlier. The biggest problem domestically in America is a large number of kids who enter the world without a father married to the mother. Forty percent of all kids today in America enter the world without a father married to the mother. Seventy percent of black kids do up from 25 percent back in 1965. Now, unless you're prepared to say that we're more racist now than we were in 65, you have to ask yourself what the hell is going on? And the answer is the welfare state. We have incentivized women to marry the government 
and we've incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And forget about elder. Barack Obama once said a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. It is far and away uh, our biggest domestic problem, and neither side is talking enough about it. The other thing I think I bring to the table is this, Steve. I can refute the lie that America is systemically racist, I think maybe better than almost anybody else can. I grew up in the inner city. My father never knew his father. Came here dirt poor. He was a janitor, worked two full-time jobs. Fast forward, he became a uh, small entrepreneur, had a small cafe, uh, was able to retire in, in comfort. I know it's a lie that America is, is systemically racist. I know it's a lie that the cops are engaging in systemic racism. And I know it's a lie that uh, uh, the, the death of Tyree Nichols indicates that we've got a real problem regarding uh, systemic racism in America. It's a lie. Cops are more hesitant, more reluctant to use deadly force on a black suspect than a white suspect. Cops kill more unarmed whites every year than unarmed blacks. Uh, and uh, to say otherwise, you call something called the Ferguson effect or the George Floyd effect. That is cops pulling back, not engaging in proactive policing. There's a data scientist. He was fired because of this report named Isaac Kriegman. And he, and he found hundreds, if not thousands, of what he called excess deaths uh, in just five cities that otherwise would not have taken place if the police had done their normal proactive job. So calling the police systemic racism is not just a lie. It's a lie that's getting people killed. So Biden, the Democrats, and all the media that go along with that narrative, they literally have blood on their hands. I can talk about that, I think, in a more effective way than maybe some of the other uh, candidates can. So that's what I think I bring to the table. Wow, that is so powerful. It's thrilling to hear you talk like that. And I, I hope we do see you talk a lot more about that. I mean, because both of those are really fundamental. I mean, let's just quickly take them in turn and then we better um, let you go because it sounds like you've got lots of things to be working on. But um, on the first one, the family breakdown, it's right. so fundamental. And actually, it gets to the heart of so many other problems because the kind of social breakdown that results from that and the whether that's the welfare dependency or the failure in school and the failure to kind of achieve your opportunity, the drug addiction. There's so many social problems fall, uh, flow from that. And that's evidence backs that up. And so if you try and make some progress on that, that issue, you actually solve so many other issues. It reminds me of a quote there's a, which I love. I only learned about it recently. Um, Frederick Douglass, I'm sure you know, which is I think I can probably get it slightly wrong, but it, it's easier to raise a strong child than to fix a broken man. That's and right. Is that That's correct? Right. Something like that. And it's just such a fundamental thing what you're talking about. And you're right. No one else is talking about it. It's easier to uh, to raise strong children than to fix broken men. Right. Uh, and, and let me give you another jaw dropping stat. Uh, a black kid aged 10 to 34, 13 times more likely to be murdered than a white kid. Same age. Almost always the murderer is another young black man. Now, how does that happen? It happens because you do not have a father and a mother in the home, uh, and there's a nexus between that and, and crime. Uh, and the, it, uh, the number one cause of preventable death for young white men is accidents, like car accidents. The number one cause of preventable death for young black men is homicide, and again, yeah. almost always at the hands of another young black man. Why the, the left uh, and, and our side uh, are not talking more about that is beyond me, but I will. Fantastic. You see, the other part of it that's so interesting is you've got... And, and that's why it's brave and important that you say this, because everyone runs away from it. Um, because you immediately get attacked 
by the media, and it's usually these kind of white kind of intellectual types in the media, the elites, who say, oh, you can't tell people that they have to get married. That's Patrick. You can't dictate how they live their lives, whatever. They're all married, right? If you look at the data, it's the, the rich white people uh, t- tend, to, tend to be ones where, you know, marriage rates are increasing, for example, where they're declining throughout the rest of the population. So it's just, it's just so patronizing that they say, well, you, you know, what's good for us isn't good for everyone else. Absolutely. It also translates uh, to public schools. I'm in Los Angeles. I have a number of friends that do very, very well. Uh, Many of them are white. Not a single one, Steve, who lives in the city of Los Angeles has his or her child in a public school beyond elementary because they're just not very good schools. They wouldn't send their kids to a school like that on a bet. But they don't support school choice, that you have an option of getting your kid out of a bad, underperforming government school into maybe a better choice. Again, it's very insulting, very condescending, uh, and I want to talk about that as well. And then, and then just finally, on the, on, the, on the second big point you mentioned, which is the, 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 the racism. I mean, that's so deep as well, because it's become such a strong narrative um, the, on, on the left and the media that it's just adding to this divisiveness, this unease that we feel in the country. Everyone just can feel it, you know, like the kind of hate. They go, they go on and on about hate. They're the ones that are sowing the hate with this kind yeah. of racial, this sort of narrative about racial strife where it just isn't true. And, and if we can sort of put a corrective there, that's so helpful. As you point out, it just isn't true. It's such a blatant lie. America is the least racist, majority white society uh, in, in history, in the world, provides more opportunities for blacks in any country in the world, including all of those of Africa. This is the only country, a majority white country, that's elected and re-elected a black president. And by the way, Barack Obama got a higher percentage of the, of the white vote uh, than John Kerry did four years earlier. And by the way, Donald Trump got a lower percentage of the white vote than Mitt Romney did four years earlier. But supposedly, uh, uh, racism uh, is why Donald Trump got elected. It's insulting. The city of 100,000 or more population that most voted for Donald Trump uh, is a city in Texas, Abilene. 85% voted for Donald Trump. Guess which city, shortly after they voted for Donald Trump, overwhelmingly voted for their first black mayor in 140 years? Abilene, right. Texas. Honestly. <laughs> so knock yeah, it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's, it's really interesting. Listen, you've just, I mean, you've totally made the case why you should be in the race, um, for sure. No question. So um, I hope when that happens... You'll be back to tell us all about it. If, I suppose I should still say if, because, you know, you're in that mode. Um, but uh, what about gerbil fighting? I thought we were going to talk about that. I thought we were going to talk about the sexual behavior of aardvarks in Guatemala. I pitched, <laughs> that, I pitched that to your producer. She said, no, nah, I don't think Steve's on top of that. By the way, I've got a pack called Elder for America, uh, elderforamerica.com. Uh, have your uh, viewers throw a little something in the tip jar if they want me to, to consider this. Definitely, definitely. And we'll, and we'll do it on the, on, on the Fox show on, on Sunday night, one Sunday night soon. I'm try and make that happen. You're just an absolute, like, ball of energy and, and common sense and wisdom and facts and strong arguments. And it's so refreshing to hear. Honestly, I feel totally fired up. Larry, absolutely brilliant. Thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it. You didn't, you didn't mention my sex appeal, though. <laughs> well, I'll leave, that, I'll leave that to others to judge. <laughs> I appreciate it, Steve. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you, Larry. Well, uh, the perfect person to talk about that uh, conversation with Larry is someone who knows him incredibly well. You know her incredibly well because she's a regular, of course, our friend here um, in California, Jennifer Horn. Here's Jen. So, Jen, we just had Larry Elder, who was, um, as I said to him, um, just an incredible kind of, you know, ball of energy. It was amazing. And he pretty much, I mean, look, it, there's, 
there's a sort of process and a formal way that people announce that they're running for president. It's a very big deal. But he pretty much told us that that's what he was doing. I know he's uh, given you that same kind of um, uh, hint, let's say, very strong hint. <laughs> so, With a wink and a nod. <laughs> you know him very well. You're, you're, you're in L.A. as is Larry. You go back a long way. Radio uh, stars, both of you. Yep. Just your, your thoughts on uh, what we might be about to see. Excited for it. You know, I am such a believer in Larry and uh, you just made some big news on the on the show. So I think that's exciting. Um, he has been flirting with the idea for a while. I think he knows now is the time he's got some money that he's got behind him, some people that believe in him. He's fresh off of that run for governor in California. So look, if it were going to be a good time for Larry Elder to run, I would say now is now is the time you got to seize the day. Um, uh, you know, it, it's an uphill climb. Any, anybody who gets into a presidential race, that's that's true of Nikki Haley, for crying out loud, who's who's a former governor and who is a former ambassador to the U.N. for the United States. It's an uphill climb. But I think Larry has a message. He wants to stay in his own lane. He's not used to he's not planning on going up, you know, and insulting Trump or trying to tear down Trump policies. So, you know, I think I think it'll go well for him. And I think it will be good to even level up if it's possible with his name recognition. Yeah. And I think he he's got an, a compelling message when he talks about dads and families and yes. and really the decline of the nuclear family in in this country. So I think it's a it's a message that is needed right now and I'm really hopeful for him that it that it goes and gets him where he wants to be. Well, you know what's really interesting just in what you've just said right now and it's a very very encouraging sign because it tells you someone is authentic and they've really thought things through mm-hmm. and they're coherent because I didn't, I didn't, you know, prep you to say that, but that's literally the first thing he said when he, uh, when I asked him, okay, you're not making an announcement today, but like, if you did this, what would you bring to the table as it were? And that's where he started. And yeah. so it clearly is something he feels incredibly strongly about. And it's a really deep and serious argument that, that no one's really, taking to the public because they're all frightened of what people will say about, well, you're lecturing people about how they live their lives and it's kind of you're getting into being the morality police and this and that and the other. And he's going straight at it. I think it's an incredibly valuable um, service to the country just to get that debate going. You know, that's the thing that attracted me to Trump really early on is that when he came down the escalator in 2016, he wasn't afraid to talk about the hard stuff. Immigration, which many Republicans were afraid. I mean, we had the gang of eight, but they were all kind of, you know, everybody was tiptoeing around some of the issues when it comes to immigration with Larry Elder. And this is something and I'll tell you the story. My dad actually uh, managed Larry for many years. Right. And uh, you helped him out at a time when he was leaving one station and going to another. And I had the opportunity to drive with Larry for probably about two hours. Only met him in, you know, very cordial situations, but we were in a car in LA traffic for literally two hours. And when we got out of the car, he goes, Oh my gosh. She's like, I just told you my whole life. And I laughed because we really just opened up and really had this instant chemistry that was so nice and authentic. And it, it, it let me know that this is something that hits Larry's heart. There are so many people that are quick to call him an Uncle Tom. They're quick to say that he is not black because he's a Republican. This is a guy who is, by the way, libertarian by nature, wants government out of our personal life, but isn't afraid to call out the fact that our culture is in decline, particularly for black Americans, because fathers aren't always in the picture. Mothers have to rely on the government to try to raise their families. This is not 
what makes a, a thriving society or thriving people. And I would say, and I've said this to Larry, it makes him the least racist person on the planet for me to hear him say something about families, whether you're white, black, brown, or somewhere in between, that he, in his heart, wants to make things better for them. And I think he's going to sell, I think he's going to tell that to the American people. I don't even think he'll have to sell it. I think they will buy it and believe it because it's authentically the most important issue that he has. And I know that because I spent the time with him and I know he's going to be able to get that out across the country as well when, when and if, wink, wink, he jumps into the race. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, look, I, I feel so strongly about this because it, it's something I've, you know, written about, worked on, you know, really, really, it's been at the, really at the mm-hmm. heart of a lot of the stuff that I've worked on for years in politics. And actually, it, it's, it's taking me back to the time when um, I was uh, with David Cameron in the UK sure. and, and, and um, ran his leadership campaign in terms on the policy and strategy side. And then same when, when he became leader of the opposition and then in government at 10 Downing Street as prime minister. And one of the, you know, the, the way that we went about things then, um, it was really trying to re, to correct some really deep mis, misconceptions and deliberate distortions of what the Conservative Party in the UK was all about. And we were trying to show that we're not this kind of bunch of, you know, old white men with kind of racist views, you know, all the caricatures. You see it today about Republicans. And so a lot of what we did was very kind of forward looking, futuristic, whatever, and, and talking about things like how we care about the environment, but not necessarily the climate, zealotry and so on and so forth. Very, and and they, the, the way the media described it, we didn't use this term, um, but they called it modernization, right? Modernization of the Conservative Party. And the one thing that we that we said that I remember the media being so kind of upset that we talked about <clears throat> because we both felt really strongly about it personally, myself and David Cameron. We didn't agree on everything, but on this, we agreed very, very much, which is the importance of marriage and the family. And all the time when we talked about them, he said, well, we love, you know, of course, the the modernization thing, the media kind of like that because it kind of appeals to their kind of, you know, vibe and and, and they were very kind of, you know, kind of supportive of that. Mm -hmm. But then they said, what we don't get is like, you're you're all doing all this kind of interesting stuff, but why do you keep talking about the family and marriage? It's so old fashioned. It's so, it's contradictory of what you're doing. And it's a real struggle. There's something about this issue that, that is really hard to make the case. Well, I think anybody of a certain age, and I'll say it's probably my age and younger at this point, we all benefited. Women benefited in the, in the school systems, in academia. We've all been propped up, basically. We've been told that we can do anything. We can. We don't necessarily need a man. And we've displaced men, particularly, I think, in our society because we say, well, women can have babies on their own. Women can get a job. Women can do all of these things. And I think men have felt like they don't know their role. And that has caused a real decline. Those are the people that you see that blank stare when we always look around after a mass shooting going, what's going on? It's not necessarily video games or violence on television. Other people consume those and have no problems. I really believe it's that we as a society don't tell men exactly where they where they need to go right now because we've done so much to empower women. And I'm not saying I haven't, I personally haven't benefited from this, but I do think it's a, it's a cultural conundrum. And so I would say that there are a lot of men right now who go, gosh, do we say we're pro marriage? Do we, what do we say? How are we, are we going to be taken down for this? But just something really interesting that I've picked up on in the last several days, 
And I love that Larry's already on this. But if you've noticed, it's the new class of conservatives who are really focusing on these culture issues. Mm -hmm. The traditional Republicans are still talking about the economy and crime and national security, really important things. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders, in her rebuttal to the State of the Union the other night, took on culture. Ron DeSantis taking on culture. And now Larry Elder taking on culture. So it is might be an interesting shift. The party may be willing to, to backbone it up a little bit. And move in that direction. And the other thing I think is interesting as you talk about that, I mean, that it reminds me of a book that was uh, recently out by a guy called Richard Reeves, who's mm-hmm. he's, he's not far left. He's kind of sensible left, I would say. Uh, he's at the Brookings Institution. Um, I know him really well because he was he was in the government when I was in the government in the UK. He now lives here and he's in Washington, D.C. And he's, he just wrote a book called Of Boys and Men. Mm-hmm. And it's all about this issue. And it's really interesting to hear him talk about it on the media because it kind of challenges the, you know, he's coming, as I say, from the kind of Brookings Institution and he's, you know, but they, it's, it's, it's so fascinating to hear him make the case with data and arguments about how actually exactly to your point, we've seen tremendous progress for women. And that's a good thing. That's not something we should be, Mm -hmm. you know, like want to reverse in any way at all. But at the same time, if you actually look at the data now on Every single aspect of life, whether that is uh, performance in, uh, in, 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 in K through 12, in high school, in, through university, graduation rates, j- employment, even even getting in now into, into kind of pay in some cases. Mm-hmm. Women, it's women who are pulling ahead and men yeah. who are falling behind. And, and, and it's a really interesting social change that people haven't woken up to. And, and it does connect to this question of, what, you know, what does it mean to be part of a family, part of society and a community. And we always used to say in, with David Cameron, you know, that the, the strong families. Well, this is the way I, I, I wrote this line, you know, which is family is the most important thing in my life and it should be the most important thing in our nation's life. I believe that's the foundation of a strong society. Absolutely. And I, I think it, we kind of, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, Steve, as a California conservative, always recoil a bit because I think, oh gosh, we don't want to go down the culture wars path. But the left has been in a culture war with us and Republicans didn't even know about this, right? We, we are just waking up to the fact that we've been beaten in the yeah. culture wars because they've infiltrated everything and they've infiltrated young people. So even though it feels a little weird for Republicans to step into that lane, we have to, because yeah. not only is this about politics, but we have to save our culture as well. And that the nuclear family is such an important part. Yeah, of that. look, I mean, the way I do it, I mean, you know, not everyone will agree, but I've, you know, I'm, I've been saying this for decades, literally, mm-hmm. um, is that marriage is the foundation of a strong society. And actually, we should be happy that people want to join that institution as conservatives, including people of the same sex. That's So I've mm-hmm. always been for marriage equality, always. And I know that not everyone agrees with that, but I think it's about making a commitment and a commitment particularly to raise a family. If that's your plan in life, to raise a family, then getting married is like, a, that's what you should do. And I'm not embarrassed about saying so, but yeah. it's not about having a restrictive, narrow view about what pe- what people should do. And I've always been very open about that and say, you know, people should live how they want to live, love who they want to love, be who they want to be. But if you're going to raise a family, that is an incredibly important, serious thing. And doing it through the institution of marriage is the right way to do it. Um, and, and, it and, and that's not just some preachy moral thing. All the data, every single bit, there's no mm-hmm. piece of social science or whatever re- social research that points in the other direction. It's incredibly clear, but people don't want to hear it. And that's why I think what Larry's talking, if he's going to be talking about that, which it absolutely sounds like he is, that's a really, really important thing for the country. 
I know. Um, I'm excited for it. Yeah. Can I just um, switch um, quickly with just before we go to a California story, which sure. caught my eye today, which I, I, I think it's so interesting, again, because it's one of these things where it's, it, I always like I I've sometimes say this where it's always great when um, you have um, the, where, where experts and the facts sort of back up your prejudices. And so like, I always, <laughs> you know, we have these conversations about the for wildfires, right? This is a story about wildfires and forests. And every time we talk about it, you and I and others, we all say, well, look, they go on about climate change. But actually, this is a question of better forest management and so on. Um, here's a story which the headline looks like one of these doom and gloom environment stories. It, 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 I'll read the headline, LA Times. In a dramatic spike, 36.3 million trees died in California last year. Um, and they're going on about climate change and so on. A dramatic increase from previous years, the number of trees that died. And, of course, that's connected to wildfires. We've got dead trees. There's more fuel. You know, we've talked about that many times. The thing that caught my eye in this story was that they speak in this story, the LA Times, to... Uh, Ryan Tompkins, a forester and natural resources advisor at the University of California Cooperative Extension, right? And he talks about the thing, but this, you know, the, the actual facts of what's happened and why it's happened. But, um, and why, you know, this is con- a part of the story is drought and then disease and the bark beetle that, that attacks trees and so on. But here's, here's the key point. The real, this is a quote, the real problem here is that our forests are far too dense. And when these forests are really dense, trees are competing for a finite amount of water, particularly in a dry year. While we see these periodic, while we see these periodic droughts and periodic tree mortality events, <laughs> it's driven because we've normalized these very dense forests. That's someone who really knows what they're talking about. <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's, it's tucked away in this L.A. Times story because they, they don't want anything that kind of takes away from the narrative that it's all about climate. But it's a really... That's the reason. Like, it's just you've got too many trees. And so they take, there's, yeah. there's not enough water to go around. And that means that they're drier. That means that the, they can't fight off the bark beetle and other diseases. And that's why you have all this problem. I mean, it's just so frustrating when, when the common sense answer isn't accepted by. And it's survival of the fittest. Imagine that. Mother Nature knows what she's doing. Those strong trees will survive. Those weaker trees will die. And he just gave it away, Steve. He blew the whistle on those environmentalists when he said periodic droughts when they happen. (laughs) So you're wait a second. I thought we were having a climate emergency here, sir. Come on. (laughs) And it's so true, the trees thing. I mean, I've talked about this before in previous episodes, but it's just such a like when you look at photographs, old photos of Yosemite or the Sierras, you know, a hundred years ago, whatever, they're totally different to now. It's yeah. not this kind of total blanket of dense forests. You've got more meadows and whatever. And, and, and the people that, that were here before we all got here would, would um, burn bits of forest, you know, like it was just, it's so different. And the environmentalism that meant this approach was like, you can't chop down any trees, everything, every single tree. It's that, that's what's caused a lot of this. Yep, absolutely. Uh, they just, it's so funny to me because they have become so inter, and they, meaning the left and all of these climate change zealots really have become so much of, uh, following the religion of climate change yes. that they are actually harming us more than they are yes. helping us. And they just for that end goal of being able to feel good about themselves and pat themselves on the back, the forests suffer, we suffer, our pocketbooks suffer, everything suffers all because yes. they think they're the ones that know how to achieve this perfection that is never, yes. I hate to break it to them, ever going to happen. And I'll just do one, just to conclude one quick 
sort of image that I think really helps helped me understand this and then a kind of concluding point so the image when I was talking to one of these someone who knew about all this you know on a previous show they said you know it's like it's like you know if you're carrying a can of water across the desert and you put straws into it mm-hmm. and you know and people are sort of you know trying to take water through the straw there's more straws you're going to get more water out and right. think about <laughs> trees like that like they suck water out of the ground and so if you have too many then there's not enough water to go around and that's the yeah. problem in many cases and then they die and then there's fuel and, and so on that in that sort of simple image of a tree as a kind of straw stuck into the ground i thought was helpful a paper straw obviously because we're only allowed obviously paper um now the, the <laughs> but the final point i wanted to make is this whole conversation really points out i think this difference is quite subtle but really important when we conservatives when we talk about we love the environment and we we care about conservation that's because we really do care about and want to understand nature whereas on the other side with the climate zealots it's not actually about conservation or understanding nature or be it's just this dogmatic ideological thing about carbon emissions is like Mm -hmm. the only thing that matters do you know what i mean and it's it's actually a very limited view of it is nature it, it really is not a, an attempt to uh, to understand something, make something better, act reasonably. It is simply just an extre- another extremist view that pushes us in another direction. It made me laugh, and this just kind of fits in here nicely, that Gavin Newsom this week decided he wanted to launch a big commission into why natural gas prices are so high. Well... <laughs> All you have to do is just uh, look at your files on your desk there, Governor, and I'm sure you're going to see that all of these, you know, carbon neutrality that he wants by 2045, no fracking. That's why natural gas prices are higher. Are we any better? Is the planet any better for it is the question. Is there any benefit from this? And the answer is probably not a lot, Steve, because... We need to be responsible, but we don't control everything as human beings on this planet. There are other forces at work. Exactly. There you are. What a lovely way to end. Totally agree. Thank you, Jen. Great to see you as always. We will see you next week. Thanks so much, Steve. There you go. What a fantastic show. I loved all of those conversations. Um, And for more like that, make sure you follow us at The Steve Hilton Show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe, follow, whatever the correct terminology is these days. Just make sure you don't miss an episode and tell your friends all about the show. Uh, We're growing very nicely. Um, We'd like to grow even faster. So please help us do that by following The Steve Hilton Show and telling everyone you know about it. We'll see you soon. 